are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I am speaking with May Claxton, professor of English at Western Carolina University in Southern Appalachia. She focuses on Appalachian and Native American literature. Her scholarship focuses primarily on Eudora Welty, but she has recently expanded her interest to Horace Kephart, Appalachian women writers, and the Native South. She has published two conversation books with Dorothy Allison and Ron Rash, collecting their interviews and other materials with the University of Mississippi, University Press of Mississippi, and she has articles that have appeared in Mississippi Quarterly, South Atlantic Review, and Southern Quarterly. Currently, she's working on a project of Appalachian women writers, of which Lillian Smith is part of that. As well, she was the Gabriella Stoff Residency Award winner in 2022. Thank you for joining me today, May. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're sitting out here at the Lillian Smith Center. The birds have quieted down, and but it is a very nice day, so I appreciate you taking the time out of your residency to actually talk with me. You know, one of the things that you're working on is Appalachian Women Writers and Lillian Smith's part of that. You're just now getting to the Lillian Smith part you told me, so what is that project and how does Lillian Smith factor into it? So my recent major project was a 700-page collection of Horace Kephart's writings, which I am really happy that I did, learned so much about the area. Um, But having spent that much time on um, his writings, I thought it was really time to turn to um, some Appalachian women who I think have received some attention but definitely should be, um, their voices need to be heard. Um, and so I want to focus on those writers. And these are, are writers, um, Emma Bell Miles, who wrote The Spirit of the Mountains around the turn of the century in East Tennessee, around Chattanooga. Um, I want to write a little bit about Olive Tilford Dargan and Grace Lumpkin, who also wrote sort of novels about mill women of Appalachia. And um, then Wilma Dykeman, who is um, from Asheville and was, um, wrote some really, really important books. Um, and I kind of ran across Lillian Smith, actually, in doing some research on Wilma Dykeman at the University of Tennessee Archives because they had exchanged some letters. And I found out even that Wilma Dykeman had brought Olive Tilford Dargan to see Lillian Smith. Um, And I really love the idea of these conversations among these women who were rather progressive for their time. And Wilma Dykeman and Jim Stokely, her husband in the 1950s, rode around the South and just collected interviews from everybody, people at gas stations, but also like, you know, leaders in the community. And then they wrote a book called Neither Black Nor White. And that sounds so much like Lillian and Paula with their Rosenwald Fellowships. Yeah, I just ran across that information too. So um, Wilma Dykeman was was very um, moderate, progressive in her ideas. And if you go to the archives, you really see that um, all of like newspaper articles, magazine articles, um, 
and part of that collection is these really interesting letters that she was writing to Lillian Smith, and I, I knew about Lillian Smith, but I, you know, really had not dug very deep into that connection, and that was fascinating because I'm also from South Georgia, um, and so when I read her writings about her um, childhood and the trembling earth, that is like, that is my place, that yeah. is where I grew up. Not quite as trembling of an earth, but <laughs> Waycross and where her, her dad was from is like an hour from where I grew up. So, um, and I resonate very much with the way that she grew up in the stories that my grandmother told me about living in kind of a similar town, very similar economic situation. Um, when I read um, the book about the large Christmas, I was like, oh my gosh, it's like <laughs> my grandmother talking. So, and then um, the recipes in the back. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even the, the oyster stew <laughs> is something that was like legend at our Thanksgivings um, and had to be made a certain way or my father was displeased and let us know about it on the way home. Um, so anyway, I kind of ran across Lillian Smith at the archives and um, when I really very recently kind of charted out this, I'm going to call it an extended research project because I'm just... I want to learn more about these women writers and if it you know ends up in something published I think it will definitely end up in some smaller publications and we'll see if it kind of comes together in a book but I'm really interested in how these writers were were viewing the south from the mountains especially during a particular period most of these women were born around 1900 ish mm -hmm. you know late very late 1800s and um, so I think, let's see, Wilma Dykeman, maybe 1910, but similar in age. And um, so I'm really interested. Mm -hmm. Other side, other side. <gasps> oh, fortunately, I'm not afraid of spiders, okay. so it's okay. <laughs> Te technically, that's from what somebody told me, that's not a spider. What is it? I don't remember, but I had, I had a spider <laughs> person tell me that's not though. a spider. I'm glad it didn't get my hair, There's something about like, getting in your hair. Um, maybe I'll come visit you now. But um, anyway, um, I'm just kind of embarking. I decided since I was going to be here for another week, and last year I got the residency for two weeks, and it was just really transformative. And even though I was kind of actually working on another project last year, more on the millworker women project. That's right. Yeah, that was kind of what I started with. But I've, of course, I'm like picking up books in the cabin, you know, and like going down to the common room and watching the documentary. Is there, is there any specific book you picked up in, in Peeler that kind of stands out to you? Well, actually, Cinda lent me um, the, the correspondence book, and then you gave me the reader. So the How Am I To Be Heard, Rose's book? Yeah. And then, um, yeah, there are just some great books, though, in here. Like, there's a, I haven't read it yet, but it, there's, like, a collection of Red Book magazine from, like, 1970 that has one of Lillian Smith's articles in it. Um, and then I think I walked in the common room and saw the large Christmas book and carried that back. One, one thing about Rose's book, I think it's great, it, but it just has her outgoing correspondence. And yeah. if you really want to get kind of that, full picture the uh, UGA archives at the Hargrid just digitized or has been working on digitizing her correspondence which includes incoming and outgoing mm -hmm. so if you have Rose's book to actually look at you know what Lillian said 
what UGA's project is really good for is to actually go and see, of course, what, say, Polly Murray wrote to her, what King wrote to her, and what she's responding to. It's a and great resource. One thing I did find, I was kind of looking around in there, too, a night or two ago, and I found this great um, series of letters that she was writing to the parents mm -hmm. um, in like January, February of 1946. So you're talking about the, the Laurel Falls newsletters, basically. Well, these were actually personal letters that she was writing to the parents. Oh, okay. So the, so, so to get their campers, was this in How Am I To Be Heard? No, this was in the archive. Okay, the so. UGA digitized. So the these archive. are the letters, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, these are the letters that she's writing to keep them updated on what's going on with mm -hmm. the camp or to keep them and see if they're going to come back to the camp and all that type of stuff. Yes, but what was cool about it is that it's right around the time that she's publishing. I think it's maybe she was... Um, so Strange Fruits, for, Strange Fruits 44, yeah. Killers is 49. Yeah, 44, and she still had the camp. She's Okay, I'm trying to get the dates right, um, but she stopped the camp in 48. I'm confused on when the camp, it was either 48 or 49. I think, I think it was 48. Yeah, I think so too. But she closed it specifically because she was like, Strange Fruit caused a stir. Killers yes. is going to cause even more of a yes. stir. And I think she wanted to shift her gears to mm -hmm. be more artistic, yeah. to she, and to focus more and on she that. she made a ton of money, you know, with Strange Fruit and had a lot of, she was doing the play. Yeah. But th these letters are from um, Strange Fruit, and the book was, had already been kind of reviewed, was coming out, and she was worried a little bit. Like, people were starting to read it, and so she's kind of having to write these letters, and parents are starting to get a little skittish about it, and so she's trying to reassure them that it's going to be okay, you know. And so these letters are fascinating because she's talking to them a lot about, oh, have you paid your, you know or whatever deposit but then she's also going yeah and this book's coming out and you know we, we might need to have a conversation about it how are other what are other parents saying in Macon about this book and so um it's yeah it's a very fascinating sort of that that's an important I think moment too because there's a couple of things with that is one I remember I don't remember if it's in the UGA archives or if it's in How Am I To Be Heard I mean, it would be in UGA if it's in Hell About to Be Heard, but I don't remember where I read it. But she's writing, and she said that a lot of the parents expected it to be a kid's book. So they were, like, letting their kids read it or were going to let their kids read it. Oh like, and she was like, no, this is not a kid's book. Like, she was, like, very explicit that this is not a kid's book. Yeah. So that was one thing. The other thing, too, was I remember talking to a camper, and I need to put this on the podcast because she sent me a script to basically read. But she was a camper who came in 43. Her parents sent her here. She was from um, LaGrange or Columbus. So she was from Western Georgia, near the Alabama border. <coughs> and she came, she stayed like four weeks. Lillian was working on the on the book. She got she caught whooping cough and had to go home. But she walked by Lillian's cabin one day and Lillian was working on it. And Lillian called her in and she was like, Sarah, the world's going to change. You willing to change with it? Which is something that her dad, Lillian's dad, kind of said to her. If you remember Memory of the Large Christmas. And then Sarah just said that she just sat there and like was like, yeah, you know, blah, blah, whatever. The next year the book comes out, winter, like January, February, 44. Her mom, you know, gets and reads a copy of it and then is like adamant that Sarah does not go back to the camp. Yeah. They send her to a camp in North Carolina, I think, for the next four years. So... 
there were those who were definitely the camp went down after that. The other interesting side note to that story, though, is is that she said that she went to the local library and she's talking about this library kind of group or network that kind of turned her own to Lillian Smith or to other more progressive kind of texts, too. So even though her mom was trying to subvert it, she found it elsewhere. And, of course, there's stories, too, with people I've heard that even in Clayton, they would have it in a brown paper bag, like, on the shelf. And then Nat Curran talks about pulling it down and reading it because it was in a brown paper bag, you know, Mm -hmm. cover. So all those things, I think, are going on and really interesting. But I also think, too, that that leads to the shift because one of the most fascinating newsletters she wrote to parents during camp was one in 1946 where she's talking. It's like a two-page newsletter. She talks about the camp, talks about all the great things that the student, that the campers are doing, all this stuff. And then she switches like really quick and mentions that they're talking about this lynching that occurred in Monroe, Georgia, the Morris Ford lynching where two African-American couples, uh, either one or two of the men, I don't remember, were former soldiers, and they were lynched. And there's a paragraph or two just talking about that and what the kids are asking. Specifically, you know, it starts off with them asking, um, do, do they have any kids? How are the kids feeling? These kind of human questions that come out in their discussions about Hiroshima and all this other stuff too. But I found it really interesting that she's, she puts that, that the in there with, yeah, yeah. with the parents. Yeah. So at that point, who are the campers who are still sticking with her? Mm-hmm. Who are the parents who are still sticking with her? Because I've also read, too, that some prominent people sent their kids here to actually help them think about, you know, segregation and these issues of race. And they wanted them to be more progressive than they were, but they weren't willing to kind of take that progressive nature themselves. Right. So they were hoping their kids would. Which makes me think about the discussion you had a second ago. It's very progressive that she would actually do that, but I'm thinking that it's leading up, of course, to the closing of the camp and those kind of discussions. So it would be really interesting to go look at all of the archives relating to the camp and kind of see, like, how how much was she appealing to the progressivism of the parents who I'm sure the kids would come home and what did they, what did they tell their parents and what didn't they tell their parents about what went on up here? Right. I mean, it reminds me, I know you've read Killers of the Dream, it reminds me of the girl she talks about in Killers of the Dream, who comes up to her one night, this is like a 16, 17-year-old girl who's been going to the camp for years, and she comes up to Lil one night after one of these discussions and basically says, why are you teaching us this? You are making us feel, essentially she doesn't say it, but making us feel white guilt. And specifically, her kind of argument is, I know these things are right. Yet when I go home, can I bring a black friend to church? Can I go out to eat dinner with a black friend? Mm-hmm. I remember riding in a train with my dad and seeing a black guy who I knew, who I think was the president of Morehouse, <laughs> go to the segregated car and ask my dad about it. And he basically said, you know, that is what it is. Mm-hmm. And Lil sits there, and it's probably one of my favorite lines from her. She sits there and talks to her because the girl basically says, I'm going to raise my kids to be just like this and do not rock the boat. Mm-hmm. And then Lil's reply is, so you want to raise them to be little Nazis. (laughs) That, I think, is a very powerful kind of line. And she's writing this, of course, in 1949 or 48. But this idea of 
I'm just going to go with it and not do anything to even upend it, even though I know that it is right. I'm just going to go along. Because it benefits me so. Which is kind of an interesting line when you think about it, because it seems like in many respects, she's not indoctrinating like the parents were afraid of. She's putting, she's giving them a lot of new ideas, but they're learning it through the arts. Mm-hmm. They're learning it through plays. Through conversation. Through conversations, through like discussions about their bodies, through questions. So yes, she is, of course, indoctrinating them. But she can say that she's not because a lot of times she sort of suggests that she leaves it for them to sort of put the, the pieces together. So is this a discussion we should have about education today or the discussion that's been happening about education for decades before? The argument is that educators indoctrinate. Mm-hmm. But if you present the information to the student mm-hmm. or to the child or to the person and let the person decide without giving them these broader contexts like we can talk about texts that were written in the 1940s without talking about politics today it's up to the students to infer right those connections Mm -hmm. so is that kind of what you're thinking about too i do think bringing in all these other texts and these plays and things too Mm -hmm. adds to that so one of the the things that i'm interested in with talking about these appalachian activist women is whether they were also influenced by cherokee ideas and I certainly have not found a direct connection with Lillian Smith yet, except for just the area and, you know, some other interesting historical connections. But in studying the Cherokee myths and stories, that's the way Cherokee people taught their children. They told them the stories, but then there was not like the little cut and dried, you know, like moral at the end. It was like, I'm giving you the story, now what are you going to do with this? And I feel like that was exactly the way that Lillian Smith was. You know, she's giving them a story, and whether they do that through music or a play, um, it's not in her mind indoctrination. She's giving them the story, she's giving them these different ideas, and she's letting them create the story right. in some respects. So th- there's but they have to decide, once they get down the mountain, they have to decide where that story is going to go for them. And there's two things with that. The first important, well, they're both important, but the first thing is she lets them create the story. Yes. She talks about, with the play The Drums, which was about 300 years of the African-American experience, you know, in the, in the U.S., the children writing it. She has a hand in it, but the children writing it. Mm-hmm. When she talks about the play The Girl, which is basically a, based off The Little Prince, she says that they read The Little Prince. It's kind of a play based off of that. They created it. Mm-hmm. And they came up with all of these things that are going to impact the girl. Religion, science, all these things that have an influence on the girl and the way they influence the girl. So they are actually the ones working on it, maybe with their assistance. But it's active learning is what's going Absolutely. on. The Cherokee angle, I think, is important, too, because of the fact that we are on Cherokee and Creek land, of course. And there was um, the expulsion and the removal act. The connection that I've seen, you know, one is that the cabins were named after Native American indigenous tribes. The other that I've seen, of course, is Screamer Mountain. There's an indigenous story with that. But I have seen some songbooks, and there are Cherokee songs in there. I don't remember if they're in Cherokee or not, mm-hmm. but there are mm-hmm. indigenous songs, and I think specifically Cherokee. But I'm wondering how much of that is appropriation. Yeah, and how much camps is are right? For, for and of course, her dad started the camp in 1920. 
She was the other thing that I really want to know about her is how much she was. She was involved with the camp scene. Right. She was involved with crap. I forgot the name of the camp, but the one up in Sapphire, in North Carolina. She was involved with Camp Mary. Thank you. Yeah, Camp Mary Wood. She was involved with all this with the YMCA, the YWCA. She spoke at these events. How much? What kind of connection and what kind of thing did that have? Because Camp Mary Wood, from what I understand, was the first place to have an integrated YMCA meeting mm-hmm. and they were scared about it yeah um for good reason but it went off fine right so all these things kind of come together I think are really important her pedagogical stuff I think is very important to think about and something that somebody needs to do work on well and one other connection among all of these women writers is what you just mentioned which is the YWCA and this idea of Christian socialism that was part of the missionary movement to China. Which, but yeah, was, of course she's part of. Yeah. And so, I mean, there, but there were some really good things about it, you yeah. know, because it did promote this idea that we have to be in this world doing good for this world. And it really had a huge influence on women's colleges. So, Bernal, we, the Lumpkin, Grace Lumpkin went to Bernal College. And um, Wesleyan was is a really big part of this story too. Which though. of course is where Paula taught, right? And where um, you know a lot of the, the the campers were from Macon and had connections to Wesleyan. So I'm really interested also in whether these camper parents maybe had been exposed a bit to some of these progressive ideas, and so weren't completely like like some of them definitely would have been. But whether some of them, maybe the women did go to a women's college and had heard some of these ideas and were kind of like, okay, I have read a little bit about Freud. And so they were not completely, like when they got this new newsletter or whatever, weren't completely surprised. So I'm very interested in that. And I can't wait to see where that goes because, as I've said, the camp is something that's fascinated me but I just don't even know there's so much material in archives I just don't know where to start or have time mm-hmm. to start so a lot of my focus has been kind of on her kind of forward public facing you know um, conversations about race or involvement civil rights movement things like that personally but I really there are multiple threads to her story that need to be told in the camp as part of that mm-hmm. and the community she made with the camp because the other thing that we talked about too before we started recording and the thing I've really started thinking about lately um, with Bill, who, of course, just passed this week and was the maintenance person here for, for years and lived and grew up here. But I think about him and the community that has grown up or that was here on this hill even after the camp. Because, you know, Esther and Anna Lori, two of the little sisters lived here. Anna Lori's daughter lived here. Paula lived here. And these women died in the 80s, 90s. Frank, her brother, lived up here for a little while, lived in town. Some of the former counselors lived here. You know, there was a there was specifically a group of women up here mm-hmm. who had a community. And Lil fostered that group of community when she was alive, too, by bringing people up here. And, again, this is not my project to write because I, com- I don't feel comfortable, for one, or well-versed to do it. But really, what I started thinking about, too, was the lesbian community they created up here. Mm-hmm. Because Anna Lori's daughter was lesbian. The couple of the counselors who lived in Wiggy were partners, right? You know, Paula, that community, I think, is important in this region, too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that makes me think also of just how, um, I think, I, I can't remember whether I was talking with you or some. Oh, no, I guess I was talking with somebody else about this. But, you know, a lot of people associate this area with Foxfire, 
Right. And those are narratives that needed to be to have been told, and they were, you know, pulling those mountain ideas. But there's this idea when you approach Appalachia with you bring your own ideas to what Appalachia is, and then you create that world for yourself. Horace Kephart did it, and the, the Foxfire people did too. They looked for a certain Appalachia. But if you go down the road here to Tallulah Gorge, that was a Victorian resort with electricity and, you know, pretty wealthy people there. So it's just, it also sort of brings to mind this area that had Mary Hambage and these people who had been places. And it has Spotfire and Raven Gap. Yeah, and all so you've this got stuff. both of those, but you've got these ideas from New York where Lillian's visiting like art museums and listening to, you know, current music. And then she's bringing, you know, that stuff back. Um, well, that's what she says about the journal that her and Paula started too, right? It's yeah. basically, and I think that Julia Brock may say this in Hal Jacobs' documentary, is that they couldn't go to the outside world all the time. They brought it to them through this journal and through the submissions you got there. And then, of course, yeah. through the travel. Because that's a huge mod- modernist idea is the little magazine. And so connecting this little modernist magazine that's on born on this mountain and then you know connecting it to the the bigger world is just is fascinating to me how that came here to this and I, and area. I know people are working on it but that's another thing that interests me too because learning about Contempo you know at the University of North Carolina learning about these little magazines that popped mm-hmm. up in this region too and kind of the impact they had mm-hmm. i mean their journal south today I mean, went through three titles but ran for like 10 years basically mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a long time for something like that. And they struggled with it. That journal actually is the one that got the GBI owner and got her a GBI file. I just but. now kind of was hearing part of that story. Um, and I, I liked in your last, I listened to one of your recent podcasts and you talked about sort of, um, you know, that you thought more could be done with her as an educator. And that was something that then clicked with me because I thought about these other women that I'm kind of working on. Most of them were either teachers at one point or another, or like, you know, Lillian Smith, where she educated all of these girls through the years. And so, like, how are you an activist through teaching? Um, Because that's another, I think that's another, will be something I'll definitely pursue. I mean, isn't it, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't Audre Lorde who basically said that all teaching's political? Yeah. Either her or Bell Hooks? I mean, yeah. <laughs> anything, kind of the thought that I've kind of come to now too is we want this separation of politics, but mm-hmm. our mere existence and what we do and how we present ourselves and what we say and whatever in our jobs or whatever is a political act. So how can you separate them? It's not indoctrination. Like I said, you give information and then you let yeah. people take the information exactly. and do what they want to do with it. But it's a political act of mm-hmm. just existing. Absolutely. And it's the best political act when you give students the story and then they have to put it together and apply it to their own lives and then go out from your classroom and do with it what they will. Yeah. So, I don't really want to end on this note, but I, I guess we have to. Since, you know, Bill was such a part of this place. Bill Watts um, passed away, of course, a couple of days ago, as of, as of our recording of this. And, like I said, his dad lived here and actually worked for Lillian. You'll see a picture of Kelton, who's his dad, um, and Lillian on top of some of these walkways planting ferns 
uh, Bill grew up like right down the mountain from here, went away for a little while and came back and actually worked for the family before Piedmont, you know, got the property. And whenever a new resident came up here, he's the one who, you know, basically met him, him or the Johns. So he is such an integral part of this kind of space. And you've only been here two years, I know, but you met him last year. Is there anything you kind of want to say about him? And and because just as much as Lillian and Esther and everybody are part of this, he's part of this. Absolutely. Yeah, I was thinking about that last night, you know, after the the sun went down and, you know, you kind of, kind of, it's, it's dark up here. It's mm-hmm. quiet. And you, you have bears coming around for grub, <laughs> but you do think about, you know, you think about the, you sort of hear the, the, the girl's laughter and you hear, you think <laughs> about the sort of the ghosts, whether they're literal or metaphorical ghosts that are up here. But I, I think that was just my feeling when I drove onto the property for the first time last year was just that, this is a really miraculous space. Um, it is beautiful in the, the, the actual land, um, but it, it is also really special because of the people who welcomed me, you know, um, on my first trip here from the banana bread that John has ready for you and mm-hmm. from Bill who stops by and um, let you know that if anything goes wrong, I've still got, to, I'm going to take a picture of it before I leave, but his phone numbers are up next to the door. Yeah. And those have, I've, I've been looking at those ever since. Um, so um, it's really, it's really sad for me. I didn't know Bill super well, but um, it is sad for me to see this generation of caretakers um, getting older and passing away and um, you just you worry that what is special about this particular place can continue in some way um and um so i i um i just really value the relationships that have emerged from being here even the short little spaces of time that you are here you feel very connected to the land and the people who care about the land And I think that that's a very kind of poignant thing that you said is, I've never thought about this, but I've only spent like a couple of nights up here. But you hear the girls' laughter. Yeah. I mean, you're staying in cabins that they use. I mean, they've been repurposed for when other people moved up here. But that there's this kind of lingering kind of spirit, I guess you would say, that's here. And it always reminds me, you know, of course, of what Lillian has on her headstone, which Mm -hmm. she's buried right over there next to the chimney and it's from the journey and then she says death can kill a man that is all it can do uh it cannot make it cannot end his life because of memory so memory keeps and it connects with the memories that those all those generations of girls because of these caretakers and these teachers who really cared about them and what they were leaving they went down the mountain and away from this place and carried those out and I think that was what she really was hoping is that that they would carry the seeds out from here and um, just as we know from all the materials and the people you've talked to who were campers and um, that happened absolutely I think that's really important so as we end what will you take away and send out into the world well, I, you know, since I'm a teacher also, I will be talking a lot more about Lillian Smith. I will be bringing, because I've really just 
just now getting introduced to her and, and her work. I'll be taking these into my classes out the way that she did back to to Kaloi and um, I'm just I I don't want my journey here to be at an end you know I hope that this will continue and I'll be able to come back and I hope that you know my ultimate goal would be this that maybe in a year or two I might actually be sitting at my computer you know writing some of putting up some of this all together this research and then and then the fall or in the spring you'll be bringing students here because you're not that far away yeah, we need to think about that for sure. So thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about living at East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.